Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done well over 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu where you'll find them all organized in various ways. Also check out the other menus on the site while you're at it. You'll find some interesting things. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's a page explaining some alternatives to PayPal. So observant bat gap watchers will notice that my setup looks a little different today. That is because my computer kind of crashed last night, and a consultant was spent all day today fixing it and just finished a little while ago. But as an alternative, I set this up on Irene's Mac. And uh, that was a challenge. It took us a few hours to get all the little things straight, but we did. So I'm doing it here today on this one, and you get to see what the rest of our office looks like. <laughs> My guest today is Andrew Holacek. Andrew has completed the traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat and teaches internationally on meditation, dream yoga, and the art of dying. He is the author of six books and many articles, including scientific papers on lucid dreaming. Dr. Holacek is a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and a concert pianist with degrees in music, biology, and a doctorate in dental surgery. He is the co-founder of Global Dental Relief, which serves impoverished children in six developing countries, the founder of the online platform Nightclub, which supports the nocturnal meditations, and the founder of the Preparing to Die Institute, a nine-month spiritual and practical training program to help with the end of life. I'll be linking to a lot of this stuff on his page on batcap.com. I've spent the last week listening to about one and a half of his books, The Dreams of Light, The Profound Daytime Practice of Lucid Dreaming. And I also Listen to a fair amount of preparing to die, practical advice and spiritual wisdom from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He's also written The Power and the Pain, Transforming Spiritual Hardship into Joy, and Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan, the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. So, wow, Andrew, you've done a lot of things in your life, and it's not over. Well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done a few things, and uh, I'm very pleased to be able to meet you and spend a little bit of time with you. So thanks for the opportunity, Rick. Well, thank you. I had a friend who's a dentist. I forget what his specialty was. I think he was into TMJ, but he also did a lot of dental, you know, he was knew a lot about dentistry and he's, he spent a lot of time in Nepal and places like that, helping people who otherwise might've died from what to us is a simple, easily fixable thing, but gets out of control. It gets infected, goes to the brain, boom, you're dead. So um, he did a lot of that traveling around, helping people in those impoverished areas, which it sounds like what you were doing. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, Nepal is, is where we started. Actually, Tibet was the first place I worked. And then we set up uh, kind of a situation with a monastery, an orphanage in Kathmandu. So our foundation still has a, an apartment there in the, the Bodhanath area of Kathmandu. And I don't do a whole lot of on-site clinical work anymore. I'm more involved with administration and, and just fundraising and that sort of thing. But it's still it's a wonderful organization that's done a lot of good. And it's just like you said, you know, people in these uh, developing countries have no access. And uh, uh, like you mentioned, a simple 
dental treatment, if it's not taken care of there, it can, can literally take a person's life. So I feel really privileged to be able to do this kind of work. Yeah, I really admire people who do that sort of thing. There are other nice examples. Ram Dass was involved in some Seva yeah. foundation, which was helping cataract surgeries, I think it was. And and his guru, uh, Reneem Karoli Baba, also had Larry Brilliant go out and pretty much eliminate the remains of smallpox in the world <laughs> or be a big part of that effort. So obviously you and, and they are not or were not people who just dismiss the world as an illusion and that it could just sort of take care of itself. Um, right. right. Takes a thorn to remove a thorn or something. Absolutely. So you completed a traditional three-year Buddhist meditation retreat. What was that? It was like three years straight at some point? Yeah, yeah. Well, it it was a unique uh, design by one of my main teachers, Tonga Rinpoche. And yeah, by far, by far the most important thing I've ever done in this life. And and the way uh, Tonga Rinpoche designed it, Rick, was really innovative because traditionally it is done in a a contiguous three-year fashion. But he set it up so it's like one year in, one year out. So it actually turned out to be like a five-year retreat. And I thought it was really brilliant because, I mean, for one, Westerners are generally not monastics. We're not career practitioners in that regard. And so it was really brilliant because it enabled us to mix meditation with life. And so the practices came so quickly. One of the great things about doing a retreat like this that some people may not realize is that it's a little bit like going to a meditation university where you are just introduced to dozens and dozens of incredible spiritual technologies. And they come so quickly, you think that even in the course of three years, ah, you know, I can get this down. Well, not really. So we had one year to do the practices, one year off, so to speak, off to digest what we had experienced and then prepare for the next year. Then we go back in and repeated that um, sequence three times. And it really to this day, it remains hands down the most transformative thing I've ever done because it's really um, like going into a meditative resort. I'm mixing my metaphors here. On one level, it's like a meditation university. It's also a little bit like a resort in that this is all you're doing. I mean, you are walled off. I did become a monastic. I wore robes, got the shaved head and everything. I kind of got into it. And you're just, just like zero distractions. And so you have this incredibly precious opportunity for such an extended period of time to really look at your mind, face your mind and heart. And you see a couple of things, you know, it's amazing when you just shut up and listen, what you can hear and what you can see. And we did a lot of it in the first six months. We're in total silence. Um, So yeah, I I heard and learned a lot during that time. Really nice. I did something similar, but yours sounds more austere. Um, Back in the seventies, I don't know, three, four years, if you add it all up of retreats, you know, sometimes six months at a time and stuff like that. But we weren't in total silence. We didn't shave our heads. We had what we'd call walk and talk after lunch, where you could just walk and have a conversation with folks. And sometimes you did a week of silence or something, but it was probably more easygoing. Your thing sounds more arduous. It was relatively strict, for sure. We were walled off. We did four strict major sessions, what are called tuns every day. And so I was basically practicing 16 hours a day. And here's the kicker. People always get interested in this, Rick, is where we actually practice and then slept sitting up in this meditation box, which I came to call playfully Ego's Coffin. Yeah. And it was actually extraordinarily skillful because it was like this three by three. It's not a total box, of course, but it's opened up on one side and you have this little what's called puja table or practice table. 
And I found the, the kind of confines of it to be really revelatory because one of the things that I discovered, in fact, it seeded my first book, Power and Pain, was the first three months of this retreat for me were unbelievably difficult. I mean, I, I thought I was just going to lose my mind. I can imagine. Because it was so confining. And then I started really reflecting. I said, okay, let me see if I can figure this out. Here I am. I'm in this little room. I'm in my little thing. Why is this so difficult? And then I, I realized, oh my gosh, this is like a detox. For me, it was like entering a deep. I've never been addicted to traditional substances, but I realized addiction is a matter of degree. And I discovered during the course of this retreat that I'm a thought junkie. I'm addicted to distraction. I'm addicted to movement. And so it's, it's just really quite brilliant that by curtailing, removing any opportunity for distraction, this kind of stir craziness was both diagnostic and prescriptive. It, it really showed me my absolute lust, my addiction for distraction and movement. And therefore, it's also prescriptive in the sense that, hey, wait a second, just like with any addict, one of the best things you can do is, is remove the addicting substance. And so in this case, it was really establishing a new, more sensitive relationship to my own mind. And so after this really arduous three-month you know, detox process, which continued in a certain way through the entire five years, that's when the purification process really started to show some fruit, so to speak, and, and some amazing insights. Um, I mean, on one level, you could say they're amazing. On another level, they're unbelievably ordinary. Um, these are really quite ordinary experiences from a more absolute perspective. But it was, it was a big deal for me. I, I, I really, I, for anybody who is interested in deeper dives into the nature of mind and reality, working with your mind in such an intensive way, it's not for everybody, but for those who resonate with it, um, it can be a real deal maker. Yeah. And it's important to emphasize it's not for everybody because if if a person tried to do a thing like that without proper preparation and supervision, yeah. they could go nuts. You know, well, you absolutely said it. I mean, it took me 20 years of formal preparation. And then I've been meditating for two decades prior to that. So it was like 40 years of prep to get into it. And it's not for everybody. And, and really fundamentally, Rick, what I discovered at the end, and this is why, again, I appreciated the five-year approach, was I was given enough skillful means to, in a very real way, enter a lifetime retreat in the midst of my everyday life. And this is where a lot of my books have come from, like the, what I call the nocturnal meditations, learning how to meditate and sleep and dream, learning how to bring um, meditative capabilities to virtually every circumstance in life. And that really was the, the incredible gift of this, is that really, yeah, it was great to kind of do this so-called remedial work, but now with the technologies, techniques I've been given, it's like, whoa, I've entered lifetime retreat in the midst of my daily life. <laughs> and that's pretty cool. So you mentioned one of your teachers was Trungpa Rinpoche. Now, that's Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche, right? Yeah, he started that, in Naropa University. Yeah, the iconoclastic crazy wisdom guy. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps you can help me feel a little bit better about him because <laughs> every time you mentioned right. him in your book, I cringed a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you're you know, not the only one. Yeah. Because of his raging alcoholism, and uh, which killed him in his 40s, and his quivity to mess around with women and stuff. My recourse in understanding a man like that, who was obviously brilliant in certain respects, is to think of Ken Wilber's lines of development model, it's where still. somebody's well-developed along certain lines, but rather stunted in others and yeah. could could use some development in those would you accept well, that I, I i accept that that premise the what's called the wilbur combs lattice and i know that structure really well and it has tremendous explanatory power it might actually be worth talking about 
But Rick, I would say, and again, ah, you know, here I am a devotee, that kind of thing. You know, my, I'm being blind to whatever. I don't think it really applies as crisply as it does to someone as radical as, as Trump Rinpoche. And, and I'm not an apologist. I'm not here to defend his outrageous behavior. But it's really difficult when you're working with, and again, this is such a tricky topic, right? The so-called crazy wisdom lineage. It's like, oh, geez, here we go. Here we go again. Another Westerner who's just, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid. And no, no, no. There's more going on than meets the eye there. And one of the things about someone like Trump Rinpoche and others is that at one level, Rick, they don't give a whit about conventionality. They will do whatever it takes to wake people up. Now, whether that's a type of rationalization, I don't know. But all I can say is he's had an enormous impact on me and Pema Chodron and some amazing spiritual teachers in the West. I, I don't include myself as one of those. But all I can say is his impact, his insight into the human condition, his ability to act as a cultural translator, bringing these somewhat archaic, otherwise okay, traditions and teachings, translating them in a cultural way, using psychological vocabulary, you know, creating the Nairobi University and its contemplative psych program, which is a really brilliant entity. He's really transformed a lot of people. And yes, he was radical. Yes, he did some outrageous things from a conventional point of view. But the question is, and this is an open question for me, did he actually really harm people like some others, which I won't name, have done? And that's where I think, coming back to the difference between states and structures, the Wilbur Combs lattice, that might be worth talking about a little bit, because I do think that's super important. As you know, John Wellwood talked about the two vectors, waking up, growing up. And like you said, you can be reasonably awake in a particular bandwidth of your identity and emotionally regressive, emotionally underdeveloped. And so this is where things get really tricky because you have a very high level experience. I've thought a lot about this in my own path. It's like, okay, when I have a glimpse, like when I was, when I was in re retreat, I felt like I had some genuine glimpses into the nature of reality. But those things always have to be, because they're not along the same vector of psychospiritual development, they have to be kind of expressed, incorporated, digested in this other kind of vector of growth. And, and this is where the problems start, because you can be really high-level, complete, a, a non-dual experience. But unless you remain in total silence and don't move, basically, the minute you say something, the minute you move, you have no choice but to express your so-called realization through your developmental structure. So I know this is a little bit circuitous response to your question. I'm not sure I can help you draw any type of definitive conclusion about someone as radical as Trump Rinpoche. And I think it's really up to each of us to say, hey, this guy just didn't roll for me, didn't work for me. Some people say maybe he behaved this way to keep the spiritual shoppers away. I don't know. To keep the spiritual what away? The shoppers away. Shoppers. I can't say for sure, but he had an enormous impact on me, a very beneficial one. I still think his work is among, the, if not the greatest contribution of Tibetan Buddhism in the Western world. I mean, he was a, a real pioneer in that regard. And the legacy of what he left, Nairobi University, Shambhala training curriculum, he did a, a tremendous amount of good in this world. But yeah, he, he was out there, right? <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute any of that. And I don't mean to play gotcha interviewer, you know. Oh, and, no, I'm, I'm cool with it. But I've given so much thought to this for years, of decades. I've been thinking about the whole issue of ethics and enlightenment and um, what enlightenment actually is, to what level of development we should reserve that term for. I think it was 
four or five years ago, I gave a talk at the Science and Non-Duality Conference on the Ethics of Enlightenment. And afterwards, I got together with a few friends, and we formed an association called the Association for Spiritual Integrity. Yeah, yeah. And we have hundreds of members now, and we've had webinars and everything else. And believe me, I've heard so many horror stories of people, and there are so many articles and Tricycle and all kinds of other publications about gurus gone bad. So it's, it's definitely something that has to be confronted or thought about. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I wrote an article. It's on my website called the evolution of abuse, which really talks exactly about this issue and largely f- kind of framed using the states and structures kind of centrifuge, taking those two strands apart. And I think it's a really important one. And, and especially in the West where it's incredibly easy to get in situations where you can make yourself so vulnerable because when you're working, especially with an authentic guru disciple relationship, part of what takes place there is just this tremendous openness. And if it's done right, really the transference of tremendous love. Yeah. And and so, well, boy, you don't have to go too far to to realize how quickly that can be abused. And it is, (laughs) you know, I mean, I read the same stuff you do. I'm in the biz like you are. And, and I see this stuff and it, it, it continues to just really pain me because I, I know, I personally know a ton of people who have been really close to irreparably harmed by these sorts of things. I've known people who committed suicide because they were yeah. so disillusioned. It's, it's just crazy. And, yeah. and so I think putting as many red flags as we can on this, I'm not in any way dismissing just the damaging aspects of this sort of thing. And we all need to be aware of, and this is why I, I came this close to writing a book with my friend Ken Wilbur on this topic. It's like, how can we cautiously create metrics of authenticity for a teacher, for a community, so yeah. that you can ask the tough questions? Because there are some parameters that really could be brought to bear that could really prevent a lot of abuse. The way yeah. to bust things out before you get too deeply involved. Well, when we formed the ASI, the Association for Spiritual Integrity, we spent a lot of time poring over the codes of ethics of Spirit Rock and other organizations which who had you know dealt with these things and developed codes. And we tried to take the best of all worlds that we could find. And we sometimes spent days, weeks debating over certain points, you know, like should a teacher enter into a romantic relationship with a student? And some say never, ever. And some say, okay, give it two years of cooling off. And it's impossible to come up with ironclad rules about this kind of thing. And we in the ASI don't have any kind of authority or anything else and don't intend to, but we're just trying to popularize the notion that ethical development, because a lot of times people, they'll sit there and kind of wowed out by a teacher who's eloquent and charismatic and, and so on. And the teacher will be going off the rails farther and farther. And the student will think, well, that seems weird to me, but he's enlightened and I'm not. Therefore, yeah. who am I to judge? And, and they'll go off the rails with him. Yep, you know? totally. <laughs> yeah, it turns out to be a codependent enabling process. And, you know, really one thing for me here is there's no such thing as a consensual uh, relationship. There's no such thing as, as consensuality in a fiduciary relationship. In other words, if that's there, hey, geez, there, you're, you're really asking for it. But the one thing that really is important is if you take a close look, and I can speak with a little bit more authority about the Buddhist tradition, because that's the club that I've joined. They have a really interesting, important tripartite progression that you're probably aware of, uh, the, what are called the three trainings of Trishiksha, Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna in Sanskrit. And the first one is often overlooked. Shila, S-I-L-A, ethics, morality. 
it, it's, it is the ground. So, you know, people all would, they race to the second one, which is meditation. That in itself is a precursor to inside wisdom of prajna. So very often people hopscotch over the foundational and critical importance of morality, ethics, sila. And then if they don't do that, geez, then they wonder, well, why is my meditation not working? Why am I still Joe Schmo? Yeah. Well, it's because maybe you haven't done the necessary work. And so it's like you're trying to fill a bathtub, but you haven't plugged up the drain and you're wondering why isn't it filling? (laughs) That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they often say the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. And, and this is this type of restraint. It's why, as you know, and I've done a little bit of research on this myself in my own writing, every world's major religion and tradition has these kind of restraining orders, right? Whether it's the 10 commandments or the precepts or whatever. Yamas and niyamas. Exactly. These are kind of regulatory agencies because until the ego is transcended, it really does need to be contained. I mean, just look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, right? And so these restraining orders are critically important. And that's what I really appreciated again when I was in my five-year retreat because we did have to take these vows. We did have this incredible confinement. And I realized somewhat paradoxically that freedom lies within that constraint. That if you're really um, invited and then in a certain sense forced, you could say, to really just be so held, so contained. I mean, that's really what mandala means, essence container in the Tibetan language. If you're held by all these kind of codes, there's tremendous freedom in that. You know, I spent a lot of time in Asia. I spent a lot of time in monasteries where monks and nuns have literally hundreds of vows they have to attend to. And you think like, oh, from a Western point of view, it's like, oh, geez, that sounds like prison. Well, it's freedom for them because they're free from all these ridiculous distractions that we think constitute freedom, but are actually the most insidious of all traps. In my experience, the development is not strictly sequential. In other words, if you want to move a table, you can pull any one leg and all the legs will come along. When I started to meditate in the 60s, I was doing all kinds of things I wouldn't dream of doing now that I would now consider to be enervating or polluting or unkind to people and and things like that. And I didn't give a whole lot of thought to that kind of stuff in those days. But as I started meditating regularly, I found my behavior changing quite radically. And um, my motivations becoming much more constructive and and so on. But on the other hand, I have free will, presumably, (laughs) although there's a big argument about that. There have been many times where I, I definitely had to make a choice, choosing sometimes something in the Kathi Upanishad about how the pleasurable and the good are not often not the same thing. And, and often choosing the good is more laudable and in the end leads to greater bliss than choosing the immediate gratification of the pleasurable. A little abstract what I'm saying here, but you know what I mean? Totally, totally. And what comes to mind, and, and I, I've really taken this to heart, is, is the contemplation where it says, you know, my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. Mm-hmm. My actions are the ground on which I stand. Oh boy. I mean, should we take that to heart or what? And so I really, I think this is an important topic, especially in the West where we have this kind of exceptionalist attitude that, ah, these rules don't really apply to me. These regulatory agencies and whatnot, these restraining orders, they don't really apply to me. Well, yeah, yeah you might want to take another look at that. There's some real wisdom in, in what has been given passed down the tradition. Yeah. 
I've been quoting this quote that I was told was from Pablo Zimbabwe, but I heard recently attributed to somebody else. I don't know if it was from your book or somewhere else, so correct me if if it wasn't him. But he supposedly said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. Barley flour, yeah, that's Pablo Zimbabwe. Which I interpret as meaning, it doesn't matter how cosmic you are, you really have to be on your toes. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this is from Guru Rinpoche, Pablo Zimbabwe. And that's super important because otherwise you can get lost in this kind of absolutistic trap, the absolute truth trap, where you figure, oh, I'll just maintain everything's empty, everything's an illusion, you know, a complete misunderstanding that doesn't acknowledge the truth of habit, karma, relative reality, and causality. And so, for, you know, again, for me, it's like the delicate dance of balancing both relative and absolute vectors. Um, and, and this is what makes the, the whole thing so incredibly fascinating because we're, we're complex beings. We don't exist not only do we not exist along one locus of identity, even in one vector of, of, of the spectrum of our identity. Like, so let's take as an extreme example, Karabakh spiral dynamics thing, roughly from infrared to ultraviolet, from beast to Buddha, from psychotic to mystic. We exist in there from completely selfless to completely selfish. We exist along this spectrum of identity. And therefore, what I've come to discover, Rick, is, is a large part of the path is cultivating what to accept and what to reject. We try to reject, curtail, restrain those devolutionary aspects on the spectrum of our being. The tail that continues to wag the dog, they're still going to be there, right? So I can have, again, this you can have this amazing ultraviolet authentic realization. And I can name dozens of people, but I probably shouldn't because some of them are still my friends <laughs> who have had this. And then why isn't it stable? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is it's an experience that's not stable realization. Second is it hasn't really fully been incorporated. And then we still have these lower undigested, unprocessed, unresolved, lower bandwidths of identity. So you can be a total bodhisattva in one moment. And then if you haven't really completely cleaned up all your habits, another word for karma, you can still be Joe Schmo, selfish person on the other. And so I think understanding the integral nature, this is why I'm such a friend of integral theory, integral approaches, because I love the multifactorial holistic systemic nature of this whole journey. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Look for truth wherever you can find it. Engage the East as well as the West. Use psychology as well as spirituality. Because it's so easy, as you know, to just put all your developmental spiritual eggs into one basket, and then that basket breaks. And so this is why I really love the integral approaches. Even the Buddha allegedly said, wherever you find the truth, you will find my Dharma. It doesn't matter really where it comes from. And so I I very much appreciate the integral approaches and the kind of psycho-spiritual approach to waking up and growing up. I think it's super important. Yeah, I agree. It just keeps you so much more humble. I love the Buddhist thing, but I love studying Kashmir Shaivism and Taoism and Sufism and science. And I mean, it's like, I love all this stuff because I realize all these people have amazing contributions to make. And yes, there is something about the Zen saying, chase two rabbits, catch none. There is something about commitment and marriage. But I also like, wow, there's so much to learn. Like, raise your gaze. And yes, tradition is noble, the whole lineage thing. Oh my gosh, I bow to that. But oh, there's a lot of issues around ossification and reification of lineage and tradition. And uh, anyway, it needs to go hell in a handbasket pretty quick. So it keeps me humble, keeps me open. And I'm always reading books from, I don't care where they come from. Yeah, me too. 
that's my whole life these days. Is, oh, I mean, yeah. I look at your amazing offerings on this program. You go all over the place in the most wonderful way. So yeah. that's why I'm delighted to spend time with you. It's very cool. To give you an alternative to that chase two rabbits quote, you know, the old dig one deep well rather than 10 shallow wells. But how about using 10 tools to dig one deep well? Maybe that would work. Yeah, that's another really good one. Right, right. Because the potholes, just potshots just make potholes, right? So you just stick with one. This is really applies like when I teach something like dream yoga. Um, there are dozens and dozens of ways to induce lucidity. And, and unless you're teaching it, the point really isn't to master them all. The point is to find your sweet spot, to find out what works for you, and then dig deep there. And that's why having a good advisor, a counselor, teacher can really save you a lot of time. But then you come back to the same issue. But what constitutes that? I love it because it's so human. It's so messy. There's no way you can shrink wrap this into tidy conceptual packets that work for everybody. People just don't roll that way. And two thoughts about what we were just talking about. One is you were saying one could have this wonderful awakening, realization, one might even think, oh, I'm there, I've made it. But what you've probably found, and I certainly have, is that deep awakenings like that often precede a real purging. They provide a solvent for all kinds of embedded gunk to loosen up and start to get released. So you could find yourself going through a lot after having had a period of great clarity. Again, that's exactly what happened in my retreat. And again, another reason why I'm a big fan of Trump Rinpoche, he's like the master of the one-liner where he said, you know, meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. That's like brilliant. And so when you start to release this illusion that you have control over your life and your mind, right? Which meditation busts those chops pretty quickly. All this crap comes up. And that's actually, again, another quote of his, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Oh, it sounds good on paper, but it's so true. Because what do the neuroscientists say these days? Like, I mean, this is amazing, Rick, like 95% something of what we do is really dictated by unconscious processes. Talk about forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is what it means to be asleep. And so when you start to wake up, all that stuff has to come up. And this is where right view is so important because if you didn't, if you don't take a really close look at your spiritual contract, if you didn't bring your spiritual attorney, it's going to say down there, you're asking for it. And so I think this is super important because people go in and so I mentioned about shoppers, you're just window shopping. It's new age spirituality. You know, it's just feel good spirituality. Uh, the path is not necessarily about feeling good unless you're talking about basic goodness. It's about getting real and getting real means working with the dark side, which is why I'm so fascinated with things like death and dying in the nocturnal meditations, which are all code words for subtlety and, and unconscious processes. Because I've discovered in my own path very intimately that Jung talked about this, the whole process of individuation. You got to make these unconscious processes conscious. Otherwise, what do they do? They continue to run and often ruin your life, right? We're just hanging off of these unconscious habits that are stored in the, in the unconscious mind. So again, wonderful contribution of, of the West. This incredible capability to bring unconscious processes into the light of awareness using Western means, not just Eastern. And you might feel pretty darn good after you've gone through years of this purging process and purification process. The process itself might not be very much fun. Like it's maybe not fun to clean up a dusty house and the dust is flying right. around. But once the dust has been cleared, then you have a nice neat house. So it's not like we're saying that people are going to be condemned to a lifetime of dealing with their crap, at a certain point, it gets kind of cleared out. It does. And, and this is really where the main reason I'm involved in Buddhism is because of the Tibetan Buddhist approach, Tantra 
which is like Eastern alchemy. Oh, God, the genius there, Rick, is that obstacles are opportunities in disguise. And, and Tantra is just so brilliant because there are no weeds in the garden of Tantra. If you look at everything in the proper lens through processes of alchemical transmutation and like, the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. I've discovered this again. It's like, whoa, are you kidding? No, no, I'm not kidding. The more you're armed with the right tools and the kind of meditations that implement them, the more you're equipped to go into really dark, difficult periods. And this is, again, why I'm so interested in death and dying, because what is arguably darker, more difficult, more challenging than death? Like, I can't think of anything. And yet, according to the wisdom traditions, if you're armed with the right teachings, death literally becomes a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The wisdom traditions radically proclaim more opportunities for rapid psycho-spiritual development at the end of life than beyond. And we can talk a little bit more about why. But to me, this is a healthy brilliance of working with the stuff, letting it come up, super samsara, so that if you look, if you allow all this junk to come up and you relate to it properly, you actually see that within that darkness is the light. Or like my friend Chris Wallace says so beautifully, there is no darkness within, only light unseen. So how can we find the light in the darkness? How can we find the gold in the lead, the medicine in the poison? And that to me is, is the genius of Tantra. And that's exactly why my retreat was scheduled the way it was, because I had one year, so to speak, in Nirvana, right? So to speak. And then one year back out in Samsara, one year back in, one year back out. And it really kind of invited me, almost forced me to realize, hey, how is what I'm doing right now with my complete screwed up mind? How is that any different from what I'm doing in retreat? And what I discovered here, Rick, and I'm riffing on this right now, this is really the book I'm working on now and what I call the reverse meditations. I'm super psyched about this one because what I've discovered is if you go 100% into what you're feeling, and this is really practical for right now when everything is just going to hell in a handbasket. If you go 100%- You're alluding to the current events of Ukraine. Oh, just everything in politics. COVID and politics and polarization. Yeah, all that stuff. Take your pick, right? (laughs) Exactly. So if you're feeling like whatever, really bad, very interesting exploration was just just try to feel as bad as you possibly can. Don't indulge it. Don't repress it. Try to be that feeling 100%. This is a really powerful MBSR on steroids, right? A way to really get in to see the light within the darkness. And we can talk a little bit more about this if you if you like, as I'm super excited about introducing this to the books I'm writing now. Ways to work with really challenging unwanted circumstances in a deeper, kind of more contemplative way. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure that we talk about all the stuff you're excited about. Don't let me just sidetrack you into things. No, no, it's all good. This is fun. You're saying chaos is an opportunity? Is that the way you put it? Well, yeah, again, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Yeah, and the way I see it is, it's not like I go looking for chaotic situations, but life has a way of hitting you with stuff. Everybody has it. I have a great deep sense of trust in the way the universe conducts itself or presents itself. I feel that, that everything is imbued with intelligence. Things don't happen arbitrarily or meaninglessly or capriciously, which is not to say that I read great significance into every little rabbit that runs across the yard or something. But if something impacts my life, I see it as, okay, the universe is my guru. Why is this happening? How should I respond to this? What's the lesson in it? 
Absolutely. I mean, again, it, it's even referred to as symbolic guru, where yeah. I mean, Miller Raipa once said, one of my historical teachers, the phenomena is all the book one needs. If you really open the aperture of your heart and mind, you will realize the world is always teaching you. You know, and I'm in, a, in like a kind of twisted messianic type of thing, but most people notice this. If you're really in tune with things, you will start to notice serendipity, tendril, auspicious coincidences. You'll start to notice certain ways that this, whatever you want to call it, this ineffable agency, this intelligence, Buddhism has a lot to question about that. But the more I go along my path, the more I discover, and I really saw this in my retreat, is that this sense that I was always being held by some force, some beloved, some basic goodness. There was always some universality of, of love that was somehow containing my experience and, and dare we say even guiding me. And this is why I'm, again, so fascinated with things like dreams and how often I receive these types of instructions, teachings, suggestions in my dream world, sometimes overtly through dream incubation and formal dream yoga practice. But because I've opened myself, I think, to a relative degree, especially in the nocturnal arena, I discover the kind of the porosity of my sense of being when those membranes are falling up, dissolved when I go to sleep. And then these agencies or whatever you want to call them, disembodied intelligences, whatever you want to call them, then I feel their presence. And to me, it's been a radical game changer, Rick, because it completely rattles my previously dogmatic, materialistic, physicalistic view. I mean, in addition to my earlier studies, I, I was actually on studying the physics track, but I realized it was such a degraded reductionist flatland view that sucked the life out of everything. I said, geez, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. And then I realized, you know, I had to completely flip this flatland view um, of reductionism to a more elevationist view. Um, there's no such word, but you get the idea that the world is fundamentally good. It's sacred. And dare we say it's even divine. And when you surrender into that, whoa, that's not a shabby thing because then for me, I always feel like I'm being held and really cared for in a certain ineffable way. I'm mentioning this because that's been a big change in my own life, transitioning from kind of a Western scientific materialistic way of looking at things to one that's more non-dual. The world is, in fact, made of mind, consciousness, heart, spirit, whatever you want to call it. And I think in, in large part, that's part of what the spiritual path is about, is discovering that. And then to dovetail that into what we were talking about earlier, can we, in, find, in fact, find that spirituality in the materiality? Can we, in fact, go into those previously highly contracted materialistic states and realize the heaven that's in that hell, so to speak? To me, I think that's the real charter of the top traditions, the alchemical traditions. And therefore, like I mentioned earlier, you don't have to go into a three-year retreat. Armed with the right view and the right teachings, there's nothing but spiritual path. There's nothing but the clear light mind or nirvana or whatever you want to talk about. It's really just a matter of recognition. And, you know, we might sound a little glib to many people who, whose grandparents died in Auschwitz or who are getting bombed in Mariupol right now. So what should we say to them? And I can think of an example of where this rubber really had to meet the road, which is when the Chinese invaded Tibet and killed so many monks and uh, destroyed monasteries. Do you know stories of monks who met that challenge in a, uh, a way which proved their, their spiritual merit? Yeah, for sure. You know, this is where we have to titrate out again, absolute and relative truth. Because when we talk about the perfect purity of things, a little bit what we were talking about earlier about the trap of absolutism, when we talk about the nature of reality as being perfectly pure, divine, sacred, 
which really, uh, you know, I mean, this is uh, the proclamation, the radical proclamation of the world's wisdom traditions of I've come to understand them. How do we reconcile that with Auschwitz and what's happening in, in Ukraine now? This is where we have to center each out the relative and the absolute. And, you know, the minute you leave that domain of the perfect arising of phenomena into the relative iterations of that, then this is where, again, an integral approach is so critically important. That, yes, on one level, whatever arises is horrific as it may seem. And, and there are practitioners, like one of the most important images here, for instance, I mean, it's kind of an extreme image, but maybe not super extreme, is, is the image of Tikwan Duk, the, the Vietnamese monk, remember, who self-immolated during the war. So here's a man, right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most, Kennedy said, the most transformative photograph ever captured, taken. Here's a, a wonderful monk protesting religious prosecution during the Vietnam War, right, Who's, who burns himself alive. And he's sitting there with in just complete unflappable equanimity, just literally just total meditative equipoise as his body is going up in flames. How is he able to do something like that? Well, because of his relationship to the phenomenal world, to basically entering a domain of experience where he could really see the purity and whatever is arising. And so this is such a profound, deep question, Rick, that I don't want to be glib with some kind of spiritual soundbite and not pay attention to the relativity of what's happening in the places like Maripol and others. So I'll pause for a second to see if this is where you want to go with this and, and how, how much you want to bark up this tree. Because this is a really deep, complex issue. And again, I think an integral approach is absolutely necessary because it doesn't mean this kind of naive acquiescence. Oh, it's all just a dream. It's all just an illusion. Let Mary pull gold to hell. Oh, goodness, no, not at all. On, on the relative level, no. You know, it's like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings. There's only enlightened activity. And so, therefore, the way I've taken it, a little bit like the Padmasambhava, you, you stated earlier, your view should be as lofty as the heavens and your conduct as fine as barley power, is you maintain this view for yourself. And that view then informs and transforms you from your side. But then you go into Mariupol, you go into the, into the gutter, you go into the darkest places. And this is what the Bodhisattvas do, right? You know their vow. They go into these most horrific situations knowing all the while from their side that they can't really be fundamentally harmed. Emptiness cannot harm emptiness, as it says in the Bed Book of the Dead. So I'm throwing a lot of noodles against the wall here because this is... Okay, a, a lot of them are sticking to it. Oh, good. good. <laughs> this is a really big, deep topic. And I think, again, it's very important because it gets to the issue. And this is, this is what I'm, I'm more focused on these days, Rick, myself, is I, you know, I riff on this stuff. I teach on this stuff. I write these books. And more and more... I'm a little bit like, hey, if what we're doing now with conversations like this and our so-called spiritual stuff, if it isn't of any benefit, if it can't really benefit the world right now, it's irrelevant. What we're doing is irrelevant. If we can't take what we're doing now and help this world that is on fire, basically, not only will these traditions go extinct, as you know, the sixth mass extinction, everything's gone. So to me, it's more like applied or translational spirituality now. Let's get up off our cushions. Let's be of benefit to the world. And so I guess my summary statement here would be we take these absolute teachings, these views, we hold them in refuge for ourselves, but we don't slip into spiritual bypassing and just say, ah, I'm just going to, you know, it's all an illusion, it doesn't matter. No, if this true knowledge wisdom is, is incorporated properly, compassion is the automatic expression of wisdom. And so somewhere in there lies at least some 
nuggets of how to work with this, at least from my perspective. Yeah. I'm sure you know the story of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna, he didn't want to fight the battle. He, he said it'd be better to live on alms in this world than to fight this battle. And Krishna, speaking as an avatar, supposedly said, sorry, this has to happen. And it's your duty to do it. But then he said, here's the way to do it. Get established in yoga and then perform action. Don't just perform action with a scattered mind. Yoga star Kuru Karmani, established in being or yoga perform action. And then to borrow another phrase from that tradition, Brahman will be the charioteer. It won't just be your individuality calling the shots, which invariably gets it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and this, this also then begs why do the spiritual work in the first place? Well, because just like you were saying with the, the story from the Gita that if we don't clean up first, how do we know that we're actually being of benefit to others? Because usually what we're doing is so infected with our hopes, our fears, our projections, our imputations, that do we really know that what we're doing is of any, any benefit whatsoever? And so for the reason, the reason to do the so-called spiritual work, two reasons. One is you get rid of all these obscurations that helps you to see clearly. And the second thing is you start to realize fundamentally we don't reduce everything into, like my friend Ken Wilber says beautifully, don't reduce everything into frisky dirt, <laughs> materialistic thing. I love that phrase. Reduce everything into spiritual principles. And therefore, what I'm getting at here that I think is super important is that if you take a very close look at everything that's happening in the world, look at your own mind, look at your heart, and look at the world, there's no doubt whatsoever in my mind that everything, and I mean everything, can be fundamentally reduced in the best sense of reductionism into spiritual principles and spiritual tenets. I've thought about this a lot. Everything we do is a mere substitute gratification if we're not working with these principles. Everything else is a mere distraction if we're not working with these principles. And therefore, by working with yourself, working with your mind and heart, psycho-spiritually, you're really getting to what the Tibetans call the nintig, the heart essence, from which everything arises. And therefore, from that space, you will realize that, yes, that person halfway across the world may be expressing their divinity in a particularly unique way, but underneath it all are these fundamental generative principles that we all share. And irreducibly, uh, like what does the Dalai Lama say? You know, we all simply want to be happy. We just do it in really sometimes idiosyncratic, unique ways. And so <laughs> that may seem like, like a, a patronizing, even platonic approach to this, but I think it has a lot of explanatory power that if you really break things down, it comes down to some very fundamental principles. And my friend David Loy, I think he's one of the most sensitive philosophers. You should have him on your show. I've had him on twice. Oh, he's the best. He's a great he's like, guy. He's unbelievable. And he writes beautifully in his book, Non-Duality, Buddhism and Beyond. If I remember properly in that book, he says, philosophy pretty much rose as a way to solve the problems of duality. Solve the problems of duality. In other words, reduce everything into non-dualistic fundamental principles. And not only does philosophy fall away, but everything else falls away. And so this is important for me, Rick, because then as I look at my life and all the complexities and all the seeming like, oh my gosh, it's so complex. And again, on a relative level, yes, the integral approaches help there. On an absolute level, I think, and my experience bears this out, in a healthiest sense, you can bring this vast multifarious display of the phenomenal world in mind into some pretty fundamental irreducible principles. Like what did Thoreau say, right? I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to drive life into a corner, to reduce it to its lowest common term, so to speak. And then when you do that, it's like, 
oh my gosh, there's so much going on there. It's a Marie Kondo of your own mind and life and heart, right? Everything becomes super simple because you realize this is what you really want, not all these substitute gratifications. It helps you understand other people when they go through their journeys and helps you understand things like death and, and, and beyond. But I'll pause there for a second because I personally think that's a big kind of advertisement for why spiritual practices and teachings can be of such profound benefit because they, they have this irreducible explanatory power. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. First, I'll tell you a David Loy story. I was at the, okay. the Science really? and Non-Duality Conference yeah. one year, the first time I interviewed him, and there was a teacher up on stage and he was going on and David got up on the mic and said, all this is very well, all this non-duality stuff, but how about the environment, what we're doing to yeah. the, the world? And the teacher up on stage, I won't name him, but he was yeah. like, ah, the earth is like a speck of dust. Doesn't matter what happens, blah, blah, blah. And David really kind of kept socking it to him. And I admired that because life is multidimensional, we could say, and you just can't hide out in the unmanifest dimension uh, to the yeah. neglect of all the more manifest dimensions. A more full-bodied spirituality, if you want to call it that, spans the whole range and takes them all into account simultaneously without sacrificing one or the other. First of all, high five to David for that because what's it called? Cosmological dualism. You know that if you don't, if you don't really fully understand, I wonder. This narrative keeps coming back for us, which is awesome. That if you can't find the spiritual in the material, then something's wrong. There's still this fundamental divorce, this dualism taking place, that somehow the earth itself isn't divinity pure. And so, what right. and if you do find the spiritual in the material, then you can't defile it because you're defiling God, so to speak. That's exactly right. So, in one of the liturgies, I do this every morning. It's part of my liturgical recitation. Grant your blessing so that I realize the inseparability of samsara and nirvana. And so, samsara is not a state in reality. Samsara is a state of mind. Nirvana is not a state, an ontological state. It's a state of mind. And so what we call material, oh, we could really go up this tree. What we call material versus spiritual, there is only the spiritual. There's only mind, heart, spirit, nirvana. That's all there is. And so therefore, this, this kind of statement, and I've heard this from others, the one this person allegedly said at Science and Non-Duality, that, oh, you know, I, I heard it in one of these ways, Rick. This teacher said, ah, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens to the world. You know, I'm going to a pure land when I die. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, screw everybody else. I'm going to yeah, the pure land. Like, are, you, are you kidding me? I mean, that <laughs> is such a colossal misunderstanding. And so again, that's like let them eat cake. It doesn't matter what happens to all these starving people. I've got my cake. Got my luxurious lifestyle. Yeah. So why, why not instead purify? Don't go to a pure land. Purify your mind. Realize there's no pure land. There's just pure mind. And so... To me, again, this is a wonderful, empowering narrative of what we're talking about is, is finding the spiritual in the material, finding that every moment, if it's perceived properly, free from these cataracts of confusion, free from these adventitious defilements, in Buddhist language, there's nothing but the clear light mind. I mean, you're looking at it right now. There's only samsara. I'm sorry. There's only nirvana. Samsara is either partial or no recognition of that. And the reason this is important for me, Rick, is that on one level, at the highest levels, it completely questions and challenges the very notion of path. So we've been talking about spiritual path. Well, I think that's a provisional notion. I'm not discrediting it. Absolutely. The path of purification is absolutely necessary at a relative level. But what do the Hindus call it? Anupaya, that on, on an absolute level, it's a journey without distance. And in fact, the very notion of path 
will pull you away from what's already here. And so I love this, Rick, because what it does to me is it's, a, it's like a peaceful transfer of power, political term, back to its rightful source. And it empowers the utter immediacy of the awakened state, the utter immediacy of enlightenment, non-duality, whatever you want to call it. It's always already 100% right here, right now, under any circumstance. The issue then becomes one of recognition. And therefore, the very notion of path, it's literally called, in Buddhist languaging, it's called sahajayana, the vehicle of self-liberation. That the highest level of a path is um, no path. In the, Zen, in the uh, do you know the Kaduma tradition? Are you familiar with that in Jewish mysticism? Does that really? No, any I don't think so. Oh, uh, I, I may we'll have heard about it, but I don't know. I don't remember yeah, they, they talk about five paths, and the fifth path is called the path of freedom, and it's brilliant because what it says is basically it's having the freedom, the freedom to be even free of the path itself, the freedom to be a full human being, the freedom to realize that right here, right now. I am in heaven. I am in a pure land. I am in nirvana right here, right now. And this is not rhetoric. This is not metaphysical mumbo jumbo. This is the essence of these most supreme non-dual teachings that I've come to understand them. And I love that because to me, it's like, whoa, it's right here, right now. And then one of my, my own playful languaging around this is therefore then stop rescheduling your appointment with reality. Stop rescheduling it. It's already right here. It's right now. And it's like when Suzuki Roshi allegedly attained his awakening, another famous line, he said, enlightenment was my biggest disappointment, my biggest letdown, because it was like, oh my gosh, T.S. Eliot, I've been here all along. I think that's so important. Discover the place for the first time. Exactly. Literally discover, uncover it. Here it is. Just get rid of the confusion. And you're already in a pure land. You know, 50 years of faking, stumbling, tripping, falling on this path, I've realized on one level that's a path to nowhere or now here. Same languaging. I like this because it's empowering. It's immediate. It's like, whoa, wait a second. Holy moly. It's always in front of me, hiding in plain sight. What, what do they say on the Mahamudra teachings? It's so obvious you don't see it. So simple. You don't believe it's so easy. You don't trust it. And that's one of the great ironies is literally hiding in plain sight. And so if that's true, this is a great kind of punchline. What's the fundamental irreducible instruction? Well, just open and relax. Open and relax. And there it is. Hey, I'm in Sukhavati right now, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with that, but I oh, know love it. Oh, throw the bone. Let's, let's yeah, talk I know what you're saying, but I just okay. have a kind of a both and attitude toward it because I've heard people say, I've heard people listen to what you, the kind of thing you just said and say, okay, cool. I'm already enlightened. Don't need to do anything. I'm done. And all you fools who are still meditating or doing practices, you know, you, you don't get what I got. I'm parodying that such people, but people say essentially that kind of thing. Oh, totally. I was once up on a stage with Marishi Maheshi Yogi uh, sitting on his couch and I was shooting my mouth off about something or other going on. And he knew me pretty well. And, and he knew that I was the type who was always sort of like, enlightenment or bust yearning and longing for you know something i didn't have he stopped me and he said every day is life said don't pass over the present for some glorious future and i got it now i wouldn't trade the state of mind i'm in now for the state of mind i was in back then in the late 70s i it would be agonizing to abruptly shift back to that conversely i wouldn't trade the state of mind i may be in five years from now 
for the one I'm in now, because there's a progression. And yet at the same time, there's a contentment and an appreciation of what is here is everywhere. What is not here is nowhere at all. It's kind of a both end oh, bicycle is, balancing. I'm so glad you brought this up. This is such an important thing because again, Suzuki Roshi, you're all perfect just the way you are, but you, but can, you can use improvement, right? Improvement. <laughs> That's it right there. And so, yeah. so here's the thing, Rick, this is really interesting. Why can't we have it both ways? It's principally because we live in Aristotle's world and his, his three laws of thought, especially the law of the excluded middle, this kind of binary, black, white, yes, no type of thinking and approach to reality. I think a lot of people say, well, you know, you can't have it both ways, both the relative and the absolute, right? Well, who says? Aristotle, maybe? A context for this might be something like, oh, yeah, so in, in the early part of the last century, when there are physicists who are trying to reconcile how light under one circumstance could behave like a particle and under a different circumstance like a wave. And so they, there was just amazing dissonance and clash. Well, how can one phenomena be a wave and a particle? Those are about the two most different things you could get. And so Bohr, Niels Bohr, came along with his really important notion of complementarity. That yes, you can have it both ways. What do they call it? Dilethism now? That you can think in these nine binary ways, these more liminal ways, which are much more a resonance with reality. It's the Sertz paradox. Sertz is both a candy mint and a breath mint. Oh, if that's you remember, nice. If you remember those commercials. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I haven't thought about that in a while. But this is really important because it stretches the way we think, the way we feel. And pardon all these one-liners, but I, I, I remember oh, they're good in one-liners. So here's one from a Nobel laureate physicist, Joseph Brian Josephson, when he says, I met Brian in Switzerland in the TM days. Oh, good for you. Well, he has this great line. I just love it. He says, you know, we think that we think clearly, but that's only because we don't think clearly. Right? <laughs> that's <laughs> very good. I like that. that or like Einstein said, you know, the same type of thinking that got us into this mess is not the same kind of thinking that's going to get out of it. The way and I so, sometimes put it is the first thing delusion does is delude you to the fact that you're deluded. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. And so to me, it's like, yes, we need, we need both views. And that's why, like you're saying, this kind of Nike approach that um, a lot of people, when they first came in the older days, Dr. Ntulku, Tunkramajay, Suzuki Roshi, and others, the kind of Nike approach, you know, just do it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm already awake. I'm already there. Just do it. True, but partial. So then you've got the integral approach then. So on an absolute level, yes, it's already here right now. Bingo. That's it. That's perhaps the ultimate refuge. But then you have to bring heaven down into earth and, yeah. and relate to karma and space, time, and causality. To give an extreme example, imagine going into a psychiatric hospital and sitting down with a psychotic person and saying, it's already here right now. You're already enlightened. What good does that do them? They need some help. They've got to go through some steps before they get to the place where that's a meaningful statement. Absolutely. And this, again, ties into this spectrum of our identity that we have aspects of us, the more ultraviolet end, that could resonate with these more absolute level teachings and practices and, and whatnot. But then we have this lower intermediate and then lower bandwidth of our identity where depending on how far down it goes, more Western, whatever, psychotherapeutic or physical methods would be more appropriate at that point. And so what really defines skillful means for me along these lines, Rick, is meeting situations and people where they're at, not where you're at. And so it's a long-winded way of saying- That's a good that, way of putting it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's a way of, of really just balancing and being open and honest and humble that, yeah, this teaching is great, 
but these other skillful means and whatnot are still they're there for a reason. Yeah, meeting people where they're at, not where you're at. So the, a nice analogy: when the mangoes become ripe, the branches bend down so people can reach nice. them. Nice. So we spent about an hour talking about all this cool stuff, and we could spend the next hour just a stream of consciousness riffing on things. But I want to make sure to get to the things that really light your fire: dream yoga, both nocturnal and daytime. Yeah, we can totally run there. I mean, my last three books, my so-called dream trilogy, are all on the dream. So maybe we can start with that because that sure. also includes the whole death thing that I'm also really interested in. I can just start with with maybe of interest to your listeners or this deep um, passion I have for my languaging, the nocturnal meditations, where nocturnal is really a code word, code language for subtle. And so in, in my experience and in my again also my languaging there are five of these practices we can talk briefly about each of them because i think they're really fascinating ways to explore the mind um, as it transitions again very interesting using the binary thing you know the western approach to consciousness roughly as an orienting generalization is binary it's it's you're either dead alive awake asleep yes no black white like like my light switch in this room so we have the western world and philosophers also, Western philosophers have this kind of light switch model of consciousness. Well, the really awesome thing about the nocturnal meditations, which I'll then introduce, is the replacement of the Western light switch model with an Eastern dimmer. So instead right. of yes, no, black, white, dead, alive, you're just simply going from gross to subtle to really subtle. By the way, exactly the same journey that takes place when we die. So the five meditations, and then we can pause and discuss them briefly. The first one used to be called hypnagogic, hypnopompic spaces. The term I appreciate more now is called liminal dreaming, where liminal is a word for threshold. Everybody will relate to this. It's when you first lie down, you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep, you're not quite here, you're not quite there. You're, you're in this kind of plasma of mind, this kind of froth of perception. We all know what that's like. That can then progress into the next. And this is actually associated with clinical stages of sleep, which I work with in my own practice or did when I did sleep medicine stuff. Then there's the dream state. And then you have lucid dreaming, which is when you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming while you're still in a dream, which I would argue, and I'd love to come back and, and say more about this. I think this is really represents the education, the pedagogy of the future. And there's some neurological footing for this statement. That will eventually, with some kind of familiarity, proficiency, so to speak, that can mature in what's called dream yoga, where the nocturnal mind, the dream state, is now used for purposes of, of spiritual growth and transformation. With a little bit of stability in that, that can be progressed into what's called luminosity yoga or sleep yoga. It's not the same as yoga nidra, even though the term nidra means sleep. So in case people are a little bit familiar with that term, Yoga Nidra is more connected to liminal dreaming. There's interesting, Rick, there's now scientists studying this, getting people in the labs that can actually maintain lucidity, i.e. consciousness in deep dreamless sleep. And th this is uh, Tom Metzinger and others, some of the world's leading philosophers, thinkers, scientists. When this is substantiated, this could be a real revolution in the mind sciences. And the philosophy. I have a friend who has been on Batcap three times. He says he hasn't slept in about 60 years. Whoa. 
In other words, it's, it's clear all the time. I'd like to talk to this guy. We, uh, we'll he'd be happy. You could actually. Oh, I'm, actually, yeah. I'm actually serious because we're looking yeah. for, for people who we can bring into the labs because I'm, I'm working with some of these scientists, at least acting in an advisory capacity. Yeah. His name is Harry Alto for those who are listening and uh, I can connect you with him later. He's been, he's been on BatCap a few times. That's fantastic. That's a rare, rare uh, population that can do that. So there's a sleep yoga thing. When I say that, doesn't mean he's not snoring, you know, at night. Right. His wife is saying, wake up, you're snoring. But inwardly, pure awareness is never lost. He's still lucid. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's really, really great. And then the last one is bardo yoga, where bardo, as you know, is a Tibetan word, which means gap, transitional processor in between. And it refers to what the Tibetans talk about, very interesting, their term, the dream at the end of time which is what death is in that particular tradition. What's really cool about all five of these is this kind of Hegelian transcend but include narrative that, in other words, lucid dreaming transcends but includes liminal dreaming. Sleep yoga, right, transcends but includes all three. Bardo yoga transcends but includes all four. And so these are super interesting practices, teachings to explore these really subtle nuanced dimensions of mind that allow us, like the friend you're referring to, to maintain lucidity, that's a code word for awareness, through all states, 24-7. And that also means that when you die, it's not just lucid dreaming, it's lucid dying. You're actually then able, according to the, at least the Tibetan Bardo teachings, to maintain lucidity slash awareness, even in, in the dream at the end of time when you die. And so I'll pause for a second there because just, there's so much to say about these. <laughs> I mean, now you're hitting my sweet spot. So I'll go anywhere you want with these babies. Okay. Well, first of all, you threw a lot of terms out and people yeah. shouldn't feel overwhelmed, but we'll talk about them more, but also they could read your books or um, you know read your website and catch up on some of these terms you just used. I want to translate it into my own experience a little bit so that I can understand better what you're saying. In my case, I've never really done anything intentionally to try to maintain awareness during sleep, but the best experiences I've ever had have been in sleep. Some really profound stuff. I heard you use one example as an example of lucid dreaming, which I hadn't thought of it as that because I had always thought of lucid dreaming as discursive recognition. Oh, I'm dreaming, but I know I'm dreaming, like as you might do in the waking state. But in my case, in the example you used, I sometimes find myself giving really eloquent talks during my sleep, better than I would do in the waking state, or having philosophical discussions with somebody and just going back and forth on some really fine points. And so there's just a clarity and a lucidity and a, an orderliness or coherence to the thought process that even surpasses the waking state. That's just one experience. There have been some other interesting ones. Would you define that as lucid dreaming? Yes, lucidity is very interesting. So lucidity, it's a multivalent term. In other words, it has a variety of different meanings depending on different contexts. And so on one level, lucidity has this clarity connotation. You know, I had a really clear experience, a really lucid experience. That can definitely apply to dreams. But as you, as you suggested, lucid dreaming per se has a very specific definition. And you nailed it. It's when you're, you're dreaming, you're having a regular, normal dream. And then something will clue you into the fact that you're dreaming while you're still dreaming. In other words, with some dream sign or some experience, and this is where the practices come in, something will wake, wake you up. You're dreaming, something will wake you up and you go, oh my gosh, this is a dream. And then you don't wake up into this dimension. You stay in that dream. 
and therefore, like you, Rick, I've had the same thing. Many of them. That's one reason I'm so passionate about these practices. Some of the most, if not the most transformative so-called remarkable experiences I've ever had have occurred in my dreams and continue to occur in my dreams. And as you know, these can be profoundly transformative and real game changers. And so one of the reasons maybe one of your listeners are maybe interested, well, this sounds like cool, but like, why should I bother? Because usually, right, when we go to sleep, ego puts up its do not disturb sign, right? You can mess with me during the day, but my sleep is precious. One of the reasons somebody might be interested in pursuing these practices is that, and there's some scientific backing to this, but in the tantric teachings, these are archetypal numbers, but you get the idea. What you do in the dream arena is seven to nine times more efficacious, more transformative than what you're doing in the waking state. In other words, the, the power, the practices actually have more transformative power in the dream state. Why is that? Well, because you're working with mixing metaphors with the tectonic plates of your experience, with the DNA, with the blueprints of your being. This isn't just hyperbole. The literature is replete with countless stories of people going to sleep, having one, especially what's called a hyperlucid clear light dream, where the dream is super clear. The dream is actually more clear than this. You wake up from one of those dreams. This appears to be the foggy dream. It's a little bit like a near-death experience, right? I've never had one, but I know a lot of people who have. You don't need to have these babies over and over. You just need one. Oh, yeah. It changes your whole life. It changes your whole life. Why? Because it's so true. It's so foundational. It's so near the source. And so for me, Rick, this is why I get so jazzed about this. I do practices. It's 20, 30 years, some of these things. The insights from these are still with me. One dream like that can really irrevocably and in the best way transform your life. And so this is helpful for people to understand, like, what's the right view behind these practices? Why should I do them? Well, this is one reason, because what you do down there has a massive effect on what happens up here. And also, here's another reason. You enter the dream state at least 500,000 times during the course of an average life. That's, you know, month a year. Over six years during the course of an average life, just in this dream state, not even sleep, you can get a PhD in less than six years. So imagine all the stuff you can learn. That's why I call it, playfully call it night school. How much you can learn by taking advantage of these unique cognitive mental states. And again, there's so much to say here in the literature. This, what's really exciting is more and more studies are being done. More data is coming out. The biggest kicker, of course, are the induction techniques. You know, how can we have these dreams with some regularity? And that, of course, is where dream yoga practice comes into play. Just giving some examples of, of lucid dreaming. Another thing I consider lucid in my own experience is that I used to experience sleep as a state of dullness. And when I woke up in the morning, I'd be groggy. You know, it'd take me a while to wake up. These days, I experience as a state of bliss. And it's not like all night long, I'm saying, ooh, this is blissful. But when I wake up, it's like, oh, God, that was nice. But there's immediate clarity. It's not fogged over. So I wonder if that's kind of a, a form yes. of lucidity. Yes. yes, exactly. And these are just one of the many collateral benefits of these sorts of things. So that, that's what's also really cool about this. It's really interesting. Again, lucidity, code word for awareness, code word for light. That's why the book that you graciously read for, you know, one of my, my last one, actually, Dreams of Light, right. 
that light has so many interesting properties. It's core to enlightenment. I mean, obviously, the world fundamentally, even physicists are saying, is really made of the fabric of light. But the really interesting thing is light has tremendous power, actually disproportionate power. And it doesn't take long for these illuminating experiences in the nocturnal arena or otherwise. Hence the title of my first book, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. When you're working with the source of light in the dream arena, and that's why sleep yoga, for most people untrained, it's the darkest of all states. Well, not for a dream yogi. That's why it's called luminosity yoga. There's so much light. Um, it's just a kind of expanded definition of light. And light has tremendous power. It's hard to contain. One of the things I've done over the last couple of years, Rick, is, is a, what's called dark retreat, where I go into these dark cabins and do some really interesting, profound practices. And just one brief little anecdote here is it often takes me one, two, three days, even though the, the cabin's specially prepared. I have to come in with duct tape and cardboard because once my eyes acclimatize, my eyes dilate. Interesting metaphor for the opening and the dilation of consciousness. Science has shown that you can detect like one photon. Light has so much power. So when you're working with this stuff in the nocturnal arena, the real kicker here is you don't just keep these insights tucked under the blanket darkness of the night. No, no, no. Lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. That's the kicker. So what you do in the nighttime arena doesn't just stay there like those annoying pop-ups. It'll ping. It'll pop up into your mind, your insights from the nighttime experience into your day. And sometimes get you, you know, maybe in the nick of time, bring a flash of lucidity and awareness in a moment of other otherwise non-lucidity. And let me give you one very specific example. So one stage of dream yoga is to literally transform dream images. So, I mean, this is like, it's like a video game. Here I'm holding a pen. Let's say I'm dreaming in my dream and I become lucid. And then usually what I'll say is, okay, what was, what was I going to do tonight? Oh yeah, tonight I'm going to do stage three dream yoga. And so stage three dream yoga, this, this is my mapping, and this comes from the traditions, is transforming the dream object. So here's a pen. I'm in the dream. I'm going to change that pen into this glass. And so I'm in the dream. And at first, it's like, oh, I can do that. That's easy. Well, get back to me. It's not that easy because we tend to reify. We tend to solidify mental content. Okay, so here I am changing my pen into this glass of water. Why do that? Well, because the next day, I will be in a difficult conversation. I'm about to lose it. I'm about to really break out in rage or something. And then some stupid little insight from last night's dream, a pop-up will ping into my awareness and said, hey, last night you transformed that pen into that glass. You can transform this anger into compassion. You can transform that jealousy into kindness. And I cannot tell you how many times this has happened to me. And so this is the kind of this, what I call stealth help. You work with the stuff at night. It works underground, so to speak. It'll ping into your life during the day, bring about a moment of lucidity slash awareness, and therefore make you lucid aware of the contents of your life and experience now. And really, arguably, Buddha uh, literally comes from root meaning the awakened one. The Buddha was really arguably the ultimate lucid dreamer. I mean, he really explained, as do the Hindus and other traditions, how you can use this wonderful distilled arena of consciousness to work with your life altogether.
So just a quick example of, of how the stages of dream yoga might work and like why bother with them, right? Why do them during the day? Yeah, I would say that's true of spirituality in general is whatever mm-hmm. amount of spiritual development you have under your belt, it's going to serve you spontaneously and naturally. You're just operating from that different way of functioning. It's not like you have to sort of conjure it up all of a sudden in a difficult circumstance. It should be there as a continuum to whatever extent it's it's really been developed and stabilized. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and then really the ultimate equivalence of the whole thing. So it's a little bit like the gentleman you were referring to. Eventually what happens when these practices are brought to fruition is the ultimate equanimity equivalence of all these different states that in the mind of a, of a really awakened one, there's really no difference between waking, sleeping, dreaming, and dying. Dreaming is really code language. This is the way I run with it. Dream is, is code language for manifestation of mind. And so really, when you look at dream in this larger rubric, this is a dream. This is what the Buddha woke up. You know, when the Buddha woke up, very interesting. What did the Buddha wake up from? What did he wake up to? Well, he woke up from the nightmare of reification, the nightmare of solidity, the nightmare of of duality. He woke up from that nightmare. What did he wake up to? He woke up to a dreamlike, empty, fluid, malleable um, reality. So basically, he woke up to realize that everything interesting, because we were talking about this earlier, everything fundamentally is is really of of the nature of mind, um, dream in this larger sense. And so this is really, we're jumping way over now to the fruitional aspects of these practices. It's to realize what the Buddhists talk about is this one taste quality, right, Rick? Where there's, what did Milarepa say? Not seeing day and dream as differing. This is as meditation as it can be. Not seeing the here and hereafter as differing. This is meditation or whatever as it can be. Pointing out the ultimate equivalence of all these different states that is just, again, gross, the subtle, to very subtle. As you know, the in the Vedic tradition, they have the word turiya, which means turiya. fourth. And the other three being waking, dreaming, and sleeping. And it's said that turiya sort of underlies the three. So when I think of lucid dreaming, like my friend Harry, in his case, it's turiya, or the fourth state is so awake that he can be sound asleep with no mental activity whatsoever. He could okay. be dreaming, which means there's some mental activity going on. Right. Or he could be awake and doing ordinary things in the ordinary world. But there's that continuum of pure awareness that is never overshadowed by any of those states. When I think of lucid dreaming in terms of like being able to change a pen into a glass, that would be somewhere in the, in the middle state where you're not in deep sleep. There's some mental activity going on and there's a little bit of volition in that mental activity, which is ordinarily non-volitional. Correct. That's exactly right. And to take it to it using that languaging from the Hindus, um, this comes from the, the Mandukya Upanishad, arguably the most important Upanishads, where the notion of Turiya, the fourth, was brought in. So it's exactly like you said, and this is this also ties into what we were talking about earlier, Rick, where the idea is, yes, Turiya is the fourth. It is that which, in a certain sense, subsends the other three. And then this is where also this ties in, this is deeper than dream yoga, this is sleep yoga. And so this is one of the things that distinguishes Advaita Vedanta from Kashmir Saivism is that Turiya is, is in many ways the kind of goal of the Advaita traditions. But Turiya Tita is really, I think, the more, if I might be so presumptuous, the more fruitional component. And what this means, it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. Turiya Tita 
literally means beyond the fourth. It doesn't mean the fifth. It means you take, like Harry, you take the insight, so to speak, of the fourth, and then you bring it into the other three. And therefore, again, you then start to see the inseparability of all states. So, Turiya, this is exactly what we were talking about earlier. The ultimate fruition is you take this Turiya quality, the fourth, beyond space-time, beyond, beyond. But you don't just hang out there. See, that's the problem or potential problem because it's so ecstatic, it's so blissful, it's so formless. You think that might be it. Well, if you do, then you're stuck in a very subtle God realm kind of thing. The fruition, as I've come to understand it, is the Turiya Tita. You take that insight and then you, you take that in, uh, transcendence and you infuse it back into the eminence. So that you then see, hey, just what we talked about an hour ago, you then see the spiritual in the waking state, the spiritual in the dream state. You see the spiritual in all things, so to speak, material. I mean, high five to Harry and, and spot on. That's the, exactly the fruition of these sorts of things. And again, it's available to us. It's not like it's something we can really work with and practice, not only in the nocturnal arena, but one of the ways to grease the skids to this type of experience at night is to do the correlative meditations during the day, work with subtle dimensions of mind during the day so that you can then recognize those dimensions when they're revealed at night. And one final reason why you want to do this, well, according to especially the Buddhist tradition, this is the journey you're going to take when you die. You're going to return into the dream at the end of time. And this entire phenomenal process is just going to take place in a more extended fashion. So that's, again, why like lucid dreaming is like a center. It's, it's uh, what do they, they call it, bidirectional? It's, it's tridirectional. So the insights from lucid dreaming ping back to wake you up during the day. That's lucid living. That's what my dreams of light book was all about. Pings forward to lucid death experience. So that's what my book, Power and the Pain, I'm sorry, uh, Preparing to Die was all about. And so this wonderful kind of uh, middle way ground of working with the, the nocturnal mind can help with both uh, waking um, and die. It's not just a twofer, it's a threefer. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a way in which Turiya Tita could be thought of as a fifth. And that is that Turiya, the word could be defined perhaps as like samadhi, the state you can sort of dip into for a little while, and then you come out of again and lose. And Turiya Tita, you know, as you were saying, would be a state of integration or stabilization where it's never lost as waking, dreaming, and sleeping roll along. There's that continuum at their foundation. And I think that just as waking, dreaming, sleeping, and Turiya have unique neurophysiological signatures, there's research to show that Turiya Tita does, that those who are in that perpetuum of pure awareness in the midst of all activity, their brains and neurophysiology function differently than the ordinary person. Yeah. And they're unlike people like Minja Rinpoche, for instance. Do you know the story, Rick? Do you know they, they, they brought no. him into Richie's? Yeah, I know all these people. They're wonderful. Um, Minja Rinpoche is just a, a rock star. <laughs> His most recent book, I had a small part in it, In Love with the World, Monk's Journey Through the Bardas of Living and Dying. Oh, it's an absolute classic, but a very interesting story along these lines. So Richie Davidson and Antoine Lutz, who were the principals at the Center for the Investigation of Healthy Minds in Madison, Wisconsin, right? Someone invited it at the behest of His Holiness Dalai Lama to start to study these really advanced meditators to get some neurological signatures and correlates to these experiences. And so they brought Minjir Rinpoche into the lab. And when they first put him in, they looked at each other and said, ah, man, 
problem with the machinery, right? There's something wrong here. And so they fudged, they adjusted, they fudged, they adjusted, and they realized there's nothing wrong with the machinery. He came in with a baseline neurological signature that they'd never seen before, a signature that had only been attained at the highest states of people who had to take like an hour to get there. That was his baseline. So it's exactly what you're talking about. I think that's the whole idea with all this stuff. We don't want it to be a flash in the pan. It, It should be a normal way of functioning. Exactly. Like we were talking about earlier with the people who do the abuse thing. It's, it's the difference between states and traits where you have to basically, the real process is, is this kind of maturation. Because otherwise what can happen is you can become like a state junkie. You can, and this is really problem. I mean, I've been a meditation instructor for 30 years and I look at my own experience. You can have these amazing transcendent experiences, which by the way, are always brought about by degrees of opening. And then if you don't relate to those experiences, those states properly, which principally means letting them go, you can, again, become somewhat addicted because we're all addicts. You can become addicted to these really delicious states of mind. And this is where things really become problematic here, where you have these deep samadhi experiences. They're, they're not stable. They're, they're fleeting. I'm not saying they're not authentic. They're totally authentic, but they're not stable. And so then, you know, you just want to keep getting another hit, another hit, another high, another high, until, of course, those states are integrated and then they're transformed into traits. And then that, that's like Minja Rinpoche, then you're just living at that dimension of awakening. You're never, you're never distracted. You never sleep. Distraction and sleep are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And your body sleeps, but you don't sleep. Right, exactly. Your body goes into repose. There was this sage named Tatwala Baba who lived up in Rishikesh and um, a bunch of people went to him and they were pretty amazed by him. And one person said, you should come to London. And he said, I am London. And then somebody else said, do you ever sleep? He said, what would happen to the world if I slept? (laughs) It's an extremely rich dimension to work with. And and, if you want to say more about the, the science end of it, I think that's actually quite important with some qualifiers because yes, it's great to have, so to speak, scientific footing and backing because we live in a scientific culture. But when the researchers were first heading over to India and Nepal to study these people, they wanted nothing to do with it. The yogis didn't? Yeah, no way. And I know a number of people, I won't name names, but I know a number of very high ranking teachers who say that this is potentially quite dangerous, that these kind of metrics that are being brought about through this kind of neurophenomenological research is, yes, we both see the benefits because it does help substantiate the power where there are like 8,000 studies now showing the, the power, the transformative power of meditation. But they're also near enemies to this sort of thing, that if people, you know, you start setting these bars. and Why is it look- dangerous? Well, because it can set metrics for realization. And I think that's, I think that's a little oh, bit. Well, in other words, if somebody has their brainwaves measured and they're not having the same brainwaves as yogi such and such, then they might think that they are not in that state or something exactly. wrong with them or something, that kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. So I, I, I'm somewhat open-minded and agnostic on this. I think the benefits yeah. are without question. And because we live in a scientific culture, that type of footing, grounding, so-called proof, I think the Dalai Lama's big on the research, isn't he? Well, he was the one that really ignited this whole thing almost 40 years ago when he started doing the Mind and Life series, remember, with Francesco Barella and and those people, Adam Engel. So, yeah, he's the one that started this. And since then, 
is just gained, as you know, you've probably had some of these scientists on your show, just tremendous traction in the West. And, and I do think it's, it's a, a value, but wherever you find light, you will find shadows. We have to be a little bit careful how far we go up the scientific yeah. tree. I think it's good in the sense that we know so little about the brain and about consciousness, at least we, and from a scientific perspective. Uh, most scientists have it wrong. They think that consciousness is produced by the brain. So science has a long way to go to really understand and appreciate this stuff and measure it properly. But I think it's part of the package. If we want like a holistic, complete body of knowledge about life, then we should develop our subjective and objective technologies to the fullest possible extent. I agree. I totally agree. And I also think what you're saying, this is a, a, a fundamental, you know, as you know, the hard problem of consciousness. We can go into that drain if you want. I love this sort of thing. Where does consciousness come from? A scientist will never be able to prove that consciousness arises from the brain because it doesn't. I mean, the brain is a reducing valve. It's a filter, basically. On that level, they got it ass backwards. Even an out-of-body experience in which a person in surgery under full anesthetics sees a a red sneaker on the fifth floor balcony of the hospital that you couldn't possibly see except from outside the hospital at that height. It's very interesting, all the experiences that actually heighten and expand consciousness, where consciousness should, if it was really related to the brain, there should be no consciousness at all. I mean, read the work yeah, of Evan Alexander. Yeah, example. I've interviewed him, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you, no cortical function at all. You're basically brain dead. And you're having this completely mind-opening experience. Or p- other people that have had near-death death experiences or even psychedelic agents, right? People who have most of the aspects of the brain are actually brain activities reduced with these theogens and psychedelics. And so there's just so many issues that come about when we try to reduce everything into neuronal function in the brain. It's part of the picture. And if, if scientists are so egotistical as to think that everything has to f- fit through their lens or it's invalid, then that's their problem. I gave a whole talk on this at the SAN conference also. I really think that Science and spirituality have a lot to offer each other, and each is lacking in certain areas that the other can provide. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. They have, again, the integral approach. They have the extraordinary capacity to cross-pollinate. And like you, I'm more and more excited, especially with the younger generation of scientists who are coming up, mostly neuroscientists, but also others, who are really willing to engage in conversation with contemplatives mystics, meditation masters on the light, and really help expand their paradigm, help expand their views. And so, I mean, authentic science, that's what it's about. But as you know, most people have a lot more involved in their scientific agenda than search for truth, right? Yeah, they've got careers and uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, professorship, tenure, exactly. all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we live in a very rich, fertile time when we can use great resources, again, an integral way from the East and the West to just expand our understanding of things because there isn't one particular discipline that's going to be able to explain everything and be ultimately curative under all domains. And so why not engage them all with humility, openness? I wanted to loop back to something you were saying a minute ago when you were talking about addiction to states or addiction to flashy experiences. Yeah, state junkies. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of reminded of a Roman orgy while you were saying that where they would actually induce vomiting so they could eat some more because they're just trying to perpetuate the pleasure of of eating and obviously 
that was terrible for the body. And yet a balanced diet on a regular sort of routine of eating and not eating is essential for the body. And I think that if we have a balanced approach to spiritual experiences using the food analogy, then those deeper states are enriching and transformative, and they have a cumulative effect just the way good nutritious food does over time. They may seem to wear off over the course of the day if you've had a nice morning meditation, but actually something has changed. And every day it's changed a little more. And the whole thing just continues to stabilize as the physiology transforms. And speaking of studies, they've done studies on people who've been meditating for decades. And like you just mentioned, that guy who walked into the lab, where not only their subjective experience, but their the way their brain functions and even the physical structure of it, this, this, the thickness of the cerebral cortex has changed. We're fine tuning and improving upon the instrument as we go along. Yes, exactly. And, and, and that's a really wonderful theme to introduce because as you know, there's so much talk these days about waking up. I actually prefer, and you'll see where this is going, the notion of waking down. And by this, what I mean is you take these insights and you digest them, you metabolize them, you incorporate them almost literally, literally. So they quite literally become you. And part of this process, this is where the inner yogas come into play, where when you're working with opening things like your mind, well, you're also working, whether you know it or not, to open your subtle body processes. So I loved your interjection of the physiology of it, that when you're working with spiritual dimensions, you're working with subtle and then extremely subtle dimensions of the spectrum of our being. So when I talk about the spectrum of identity, this is not just psychological, spiritual, it's a physical spectrum of identity. And so when we work, we have a a terrific mind opening experience. And then it takes time, sometimes lifetimes to wake down, to digest, to let the subtle body itself work to sustain that openness. And the reason this becomes very interesting is because At some point, oh my gosh, if science could in fact come along with some spiritual fMRI or whatever, where you could see the structures of the nadis and the chakras and the whatnot opening, what takes place when the mind opens is the subtle body also opens. And when the subtle body opens, all the energy that's trapped in these knots and these tied up chakras and whatnot, that's all released. And that's why, what did Milarepa say? Hasten slowly. Yes, we want to practice it as if our hair is on fire because life is so precious and short. We also need time to digest, metabolize, and otherwise mixing stories. Otherwise, you'll throw up the experience, right? The body has to have time to digest, metabolize, process these experiences. And therefore, like the place I did my three-year retreat um, was called Sopa Chilling, which means Dharma place of patience or forbearance. It takes patience. It takes a quality of forbearance. When you consume this experience, you have these spiritual experiences, the body, the subtle body needs time to digest and process. That's really good. I think that patience is an extremely important quality on the spiritual path, not only with regard to your spiritual development, but with regard to life circumstances. You know, as George Harrison said, all things must pass. I think that was the name of his album. You know, it's a hackneyed phrase, but it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yes. And, you know, and some marathon runners can, you know, run a marathon pretty fast, yeah. but I couldn't. And if I tried to run it the way they'd run it, I'd fall flat on my face, and, you know, after a mile or two. So you have to pace yourself at your own what works yes. for you. 
Yes. And, and be honest with your own experience and have, again, if possible, if you have the capacities to work with other community, sangha, whatever legitimate teachers who can support you in this process of digestion and metabolism. Because otherwise you get all these eating disorders, right? <laughs> yeah, you do. You get people flipping out, you know, because they push too hard. I've talked to people who have friends in the psychedelic world. And you and I talked, I think, this morning on the phone about the value of psychedelics. But there are people who who just are trying to crash the gates of heaven, so to speak, yeah. by taking too much of them. And then they end up, talk about subtle body. I mean, they, I think it, end, it ends up damaging the subtle body. And who knows how long it might take to repair that damage. No, it's so true, Rick. This is a really good caveat to throw into the mix because uh, we're in the West. We tend to be a, a bit impatient. Again, this exceptionalist, elitist attitude. I don't need these preliminaries. I don't need the morality. I don't need the ethics. I'm just going to go right to the highest goodies. You know, yeah. the yeah. Mahamudra non-duality. Well, you know, get back to me in 20 years and let me know how that turns out. <laughs> so yeah. this quality of just the steady gate, just never, like, what does the Holiness Dalai Lama say? Just never give up, just steady, steady gate. And the issue of, of looking for state experiences, this was a big deal in my three-year retreat because you're doing these practices and some of them, the practices have signs. They have like the inner heat yogas. You know, if you do those, you feel the heat. You do a POA practice, the ejection of consciousness thing, you, you have signs. So there are metrics, again, somewhat connected to what we were talking about earlier. And so what would happen, I saw this in retreat, is you're in there and you're like, okay, let me share the story with you. This is hysterical. True story, Rick. You'll see how this fits in. I was teaching a program and uh, there was this hysterical lady there. I mean, she was just a gas and, and she was running up to the little gathering shrine room where I was about to continue with day four of this event and i overheard her say she goes come on inner peace i ain't got all day (laughs) it's like you know sometimes it takes all day right so i would see people on my in my retreat who like you know they weren't getting the signs and so what do they do just like you said they push they push and that's when you get in trouble when when you just don't have just I don't mind what happens. Let whatever whatever happens or doesn't happen is all grist or non-grist for the mill. This is an important point for impatient Westerners. And I I, I say a little of this from my own experience that um, if you try too hard, what is a maxim? Not too tight, not too loose. There has to be some quality of effort. Otherwise, it's not a practice. But if you try too hard, it's going to backfire. If you don't try enough, nothing's going to Yeah, there's so a bunch of verses in the Gita about that. This yoga is not for him who eats too much or eats too little, sleeps too much or sleeps too little, you know, exhausts himself or is lazy. And didn't Buddha say the middle way? Wasn't that a big... Totally, that's the middle way, exactly. And so, especially in the West, for people who feel like, again, they have to just crank it up and have these experiences, this is my languaging, but one of the ways that the natural state, non-duality, whatever you want to call it, is referred to in the Tibetan language is this literally ordinary mind. And what I see very often in the impatient West is, and, and, and I, 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 I love Kansas, so you'll get the, the, the tongue-in-cheek thing here, where we tend to look for Hollywood-type experiences when it's actually more like Kansas. <laughs> These experiences, are they're literally extraordinary. And so the reason this is so important, to come back to the state donkey thing, or what my friend Zvi Shalom, the Jewish mystic, talks about his becoming. I've interviewed him. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> he's, he's a great God, guy. He's the best. The God addict, right? Yeah. You have this experience. 
oh, this resonates with my definition of spirituality. That's a spiritual experience. I want more of that. Well, then guess what happens? You've just replaced the chain made of lead with one made of gold. Now you're chained to that experience. And so therefore, once again, how does that blissful spiritual experience relate to when you're sick or dying or whatever? Where's your spirituality then? Why can't you relate to equanimity to both states? And I think that's really important because then spiritual experiences then become this golden chain, the golden cage in Sufism, where you think that's it. And then the minute that happens, Taisitu Rinpoche said these are among the most dangerous of all spiritual traps because they're so delicious. They're like mental, spiritual candy. And they're okay. You know, a little candy is okay. But if you feed on it, it's just going to make your meditation very sick. Or your teeth. So, as, as or your teeth. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly. a dentist. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I see this a lot in the West. So I think it's important for impatient practitioners in the West. There are no real shortcuts. Well, this is worth saying. My teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, once taught us, he said, karma, you can't really rush things. Karma really has to have its own way. Things have to be worked out in in their own particular way. And then he emphasized the importance of patience and whatnot. But he said, however, he said, however, there is one thing. If you really want to accelerate your practice, do it for the benefit of others. In other words, have the aspiration of the bodhisattva that you're doing your practices for your family. You're doing your meditations, not for you. You're doing them for others. And therefore, he said, that's, that's the secret sauce. Buddhist language, bodhicitta, right? The secret sauce of doing your meditations, not just for yourself, for the planet, for others, for the world. And this is a, a wonderful way to come full circle to this notion of relevance. Like if, if we can't really employ these teachings, these practices to work with the ecological situation, to work with everything that's happening in the world, what are we doing here? What relevance is it? Are we just philosophizing? What's the point in that, right? So this stuff, this stuff has teeth. If you really do spiritual practice properly, it absolutely has incredible traction in how to be a benefit in the world today. Yeah, I have two thoughts about that have been kicking around my mind the last few minutes, and let me throw them both out and you can comment hmm. on them. But one is based on what you just said. I kind of have the belief, if you want to call it that, that there's something we might call collective consciousness, which analogously might be uh, compared to a cloud, which accumulates static electricity. And eventually, lightning has to strike out because the the imbalance has gotten too great between that cloud and the ground or that cloud and another cloud. So like that, every single one of us in the world is emitting influences all the time. And those influences accumulate in the cloud of collective consciousness. And eventually they have to break out somehow. So a war or some kind of catastrophe or something. Yes. And by the same token, we through spiritual practice can diminish the accumulation that has grown in the cloud. We can contribute kind of a healing, soothing, nourishing influence to it so that it won't have to break out like that. There's a line from the Yoga Sutras, avert the danger which has not yet come. So if we don't avert it, it's got to come, but we can defuse it. And I think when you're talking about benefiting the world through spiritual practice, I think that's one of the main ways in which it happens. That's such a great topic, Rick. And, and several things come to mind there. And this also ties in to this incredible importance of having a right view that if you think that the world is made of matter and it's solid, lasting, independent, and there's people out there separate from you and the world is separate from me, then what I do with my little minuscule mind and my little meditation is yeah, ineffectual. Yeah. 
But, well, baby, again, <laughs> if reality is of the nature of mind, not matter, then what I do in here, because there is no in here out there, what did Wheeler say? There is the physicist, right? There is no out there out there. What I do in here, so to speak, absolutely positively has rippling effects on what happens out there. And, and to show you one, I wouldn't say extreme, but one very insightful comment from, again, one of my main teachers, Trunga Rinpoche, he's the guy, the master who put me in my three-year retreat. In one of his texts, he wrote the most interesting thing. He said that in environments where people are really aggressive, they, they hold hostile thoughts, aggressive, bitter, nasty, violent thoughts. He said that the landscape will respond in kind, that eventually that rippling effect will manifest as earthquakes, ecological disasters, natural repercussions of these unnatural states. And therefore, conversely, exactly like you say, if you work with beneficent, loving thoughts, you're doing spiritual practices like Tonglin and others that are designed to connect you to others, that has a lot more power than you think. Because reality, again, is made of the nature of heart, mind, spirit, same heart, mind, spirit that I have. Therefore, what I do has effects. And you probably remember this book, Rick, from maybe 40 years ago. Remember the Maharishi effect? Remember that book? I was in those. Uh, that's, I was in the really? team. So I, I spent three months in Iran generating an influence, hopefully, with a bunch I, of other guys. I, <laughs> I left, wonder. I left I three days before the Shah did. Exactly. And our, and our mutual <laughs> friend, Chris Bache, and his, his book, his lovely book, The Living Classroom, talks about this, the connective tissue of consciousness. Yeah how it applies in a teaching capacity and pedagogical approaches, how it applies in, in, the, in a world approach like this. And therefore, really what we do with our minds, the state of our minds, whether we know it or not, has an effect on the state of the so-called external world because there isn't one. And every little vibration that we put has, has this rippling effect. And the, like you mentioned with the Maharishi effect and others, the more we do this, and I think there's some interesting data coming out that Chris writes about in his book, um, supporting this kind of thing, that it's not just metaphysical mumbo-jumbo, using Sheldrake's work with you know morphogenetic fields and whatnot, that what we do sends a vibratory impact signature across the rest of the land. And again, I love this, because just like with what I was talking about earlier about um, the absolute approach and the immediacy of things, this empowers my view, my understanding of what I do with my practice, the dedication of my marriage, the aspirations around my work, that, that I actually have a lot more power in a non-egoic sense than, than I think, more uh, eco sense. And I can really affect others through what I do with my own being. Yeah. And if people have a hard time with earthquakes, because we're talking about tectonic plates, forget about earthquakes. Think about the Pacific garbage patch or global warming or toxic, you know, what's happening with the tar sands in Canada or any number of things. Anything we see in the world is just a reflection of the quality of the individual minds of 8 billion people being projected or manifested into material creation. And if all those 8 billion minds were enlightened or somewhere in that direction, we could have heaven on earth, in my opinion. Totally. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, this is really the kind of the tantric interpretation of pure land that we can discover and, and actually bring about this quality of purity through the collective power of our being. And again, I love this because it's not metaphysical, philosophical mumbo jumbo. This is really a wonderfully empowering set of teachings that um, can really, you know, the more you feel this, the more you think it, the more you believe it, the more you're going to do it because you realize, whoa, you know, every breath I take, I'm in intercourse with my world. I'm, I'm actually having an effect. 
And you know this when you're when you're around people. It's like when you when you're really in the physical presence of someone who's done this sort of work, who's really fully like I love the the Tibetan name for His Holiness Dalai Lama is Kundin, which means presence, the one who lives in presence. And when you're around him, right, you know it's like whoa, whoa. Questions are coming in. Questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we'll ask these. And before I ask these, I just want to touch on one other point you brought up about the subtle body. Because somebody might look at an old yogi or whatever the Tibetan equivalent of the word is, who's dying, and he's decrepit, maybe he has cancer, his body is shot, maybe he even has Alzheimer's or something. But that's just the gross body. And obviously, none of us are going to look too pretty at the point of death, but the gross body could be very pretty if you could see it. And that doesn't decay when the gross body decays. And that's what we carry on with when the gross body dies. Most people know this, but I just want to give you an opportunity to emphasize that point. Oh, yes. I absolutely want to put an exclamation point on that. And let me share, let me do this in the form of a story. When I was conducting interviews for my book, Preparing to Die, I had the great good fortune because I was working in Nepal and India, Tibet at that time to interview a number of amazing individuals, which I compiled that data in the back of my book. And one of the people I met with, his name was Tenga Rinpoche, T-E-N-G-A. I hadn't seen him in years. And when I was admitted into his quarters to ask him my silly questions, literally I was just taken aback when I saw him because he was a physical train wreck. His legs had been amputated from diabetes. He was blind. The guy should have been in ICU. And he sat there, Rick, with the most ineffable countenance and joy and radiance. I mean, here was a guy, his, his physical body was, was like, this guy should be in the hospital. He was beaming and smiling and laughing. I didn't need to ask him any questions. That's all I needed was right there. His view of who he really was, that he's not this outer body, that there's a dimension within him that is literally called a changeless nature that is untouched, that does not enter the world of space and time, does not get Alzheimer's, dementia, AIDS, Parkinson's, whatever. He had taken refuge in that. And it didn't matter a whit what was happening at the outer level with his own body, because he realized that's not me. That's just an outer temporary manifestation of me. And he was taking refuge in this inner being. And that was a really powerful transmission. I mean, hopefully, if I have the great good fortune to die in in those kind of conditions, to really take refuge, inner refuge in this inner subtle body that is not affected by space and time, the ravages, um, that's a game changer when it comes to the end of life. And so this is great because, you know, as I get age and I look at my body, I'm slowly falling apart. It's all coming undone. And I use him as a role model. Eckhart Tolle says this beautifully in one of his writings. He said, you know, what is loss at the level of matter is gain at the level of spirit. And in a very real way, when we're aging and dying in Tibetan, it's called nundro. It's a, a type of preliminary practice. It's basically inviting us and then eventually forcing us to what? Let go. Let go of this exclusive identification with form, which is what ego is. Transfer, again, transfer that identity into these more subtle, truer dimensions of your being. Because, hey, guess what? This is exactly the transfer that's going to take place when you die. So why not make that transfer now? Why not die before you die? Why not shift your identity from exclusive identification with form into the formless, deathless nature of who you really are? 
And this guy you just mentioned who'd had his legs amputated and everything, it's not that he really fervently believed that he, you know, was anything or other. It was that he had transformed his inner experience through a lifetime of of practice. And so it was not anything he had to think about or psych himself into or anything like that. It's that was his living reality. That was his living reality. Yeah. yeah. It really affected me. So beautiful. So let's get some questions here. These are from, we have three questions, all okay. from Elizabeth. Question number one. What is the difference between a lucid dream and the experience of the waking state? In other words, once we know we are dreaming, how is it still a dream rather than a sense of perception or imagination? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, again, it depends on how you define dream, right, Elizabeth? So if you, if you talk about dream as manifestation of mind, from an absolute, from a more like awakened perspective of someone who has ultimate lucidity in all states, there is no difference. There is no difference. They see that dimension and expression of mind exactly the same way we do, or they do this. Repeat the last part of the question again, Rick. Once we know we are dreaming, how is it still a dream rather than a sense of yes. perception? And I would just ask you to add to her question, wouldn't dreaming be mental activity without physical activity? And physical activity yes. is mental yes. and physical activity both. So you just taken a layer off, but the other exactly. layers... Yeah, my friend Stephen LaBerge, really the father of Western scientific lucid dreaming, he proved it. He, what does he say? Waking consciousness is dreaming consciousness with sensory constraints. Dreaming consciousness is waking consciousness without sensory constraints. That makes sense. That's a really nice And point. it also, it's a waking consciousness is a state in which we are sharing a world in which there's some intersubjective agreement. Exactly. Whereas you could have 50,000 people in a baseball stadium all seeing pretty much the same game, although they might be rooting for different teams. But if they all fell asleep, you'd have 50,000 different dreams. That's actually very interesting. Let me just say one brief thing there, because this might take us too far away from the other questions. It's very interesting because we often say things in an unexamined way that, you know, I have a, pers- I have a pers- certain perspective of, right? Perspective of. Well, really at the deepest levels, there's perspective as, there's no perspective of, because if there's a perspective of, there's one game, right? Then that implies there's something truly solid, lasting, independent, dualistically out there. But if you take a very close look at things, there's, there's simply just perspective. Yes, we agree in the collective state, and that's a really interesting, important distinction, but that's why the nighttime dream on one level is not the same because we have this collective thing going on. But I'll let that go for now because this starts to get into... It's a whole kettle of fish. Exactly. (laughs) All right, let me get to Elizabeth's second question. She said, for the realized or someone who is stable in their recognition of mind, is it necessary to prepare in any way for the death of the body? So in other words, someone who's already established, is there any further preparation? No, that's it. That's it. That's all you got to do. One small thing here in relation to dreams that may be of some interest is if I had a nickel for how many times I've been asked this, I could retire. The question is like, where do you go when you die? Well, if you really understand the real nuances of dream yoga and dream as manifestation of mind, you simply transition from one dream to the next. That's it. You simply transition from one dream to the next. And so for the ultimate lucid dreamers who have lucidity awareness, like Harry, across all states of mind, then basically that's it. You just simply naturally transition from one dream to the next. Question three, which schools of Buddhist philosophy are most similar to Advaita Vedanta? Oh, what a great question. 
Well, those would probably be Mahamudra and Dzogchen. So I'm principally a student of Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana, also Tantric Buddhism, four main schools. And allegedly the highest school, the highest traditions within those four schools are called the Mahamudra, the Great Seal Tradition, Formless Meditations, Non-Dual Traditions, and then what's called the Nyingma Dzogchen School. So those are the two main practices. But there is a difference here, Elizabeth, and I've, I've engaged in some wonderfully rich conversations with probably people you know, Swami Sarvapriyananda, Rupert Spira, oh, really? and others. Yeah, wonderful. Swami Sarvapriyananda is going to start a podcast at my urging in which he interviews all these people. He already did one with Rupert, which I moderated. But I was thinking as you were talking, he should have you on as a guest on his podcast. Oh, I actually interviewed him for two hours a couple of months ago. Oh, okay, uh, good. <laughs> yeah, what a beautiful... In fact, he's coming on again later for this preparing to die thing we're doing. But what a beautiful soul. Oh, he's so great. I've, had, I've had these conversations with Swamiji about this. Where, because, you know, again, just briefly about his genius, his, he's so open and he's like studying Buddhist Majamaka and all this stuff is like... Spent a year at Harvard studying all this stuff. I, I, the guy, yeah. I mean, I bow, bow, bow to him. But one big difference, and Rupert Spire as well, and I, I, I actually questioned him on this as well. One of the subtle issues with Advaita Vedanta uh, is it's, it's potentially monistic or absolutistic approach. And, and by this, what I mean is may seem subtle, but it actually is a bit important that there's a subtle monism implied when, when people don't approach Advaita Vedanta properly, that everything is just the one consciousness, the one mind. Well, not really, because when you really look at, at non-duality, it is a term of negation, not assertion. It's a non-affirming negation. And, and again, well, such a rich topic, maybe we don't need to go completely into these weeds but here's the kicker. When you get into these really subtle distinctions between Advaita Vedanta, Nandul Shaiva Tantra, Mahamudra Dzogchen, and Swamiji said, agreed with me on this. He said, it's actually these tiny little rubs that turn out to be the ones you want to really pay attention to. Like, where does the Advaita Vedanta not agree with Shaiva Tantra or with Dzogchen? That's the stuff you want to pay attention to because that's where the insights come from. And that's what I love about him it's like he is so willing to go outside of his comfort zone, outside of his box and say, oh my gosh, the Majamakas, boy, do they have some really interesting things to say here that I don't see as a Advaita Vedanta from my own side. And I so appreciate that. Yeah, um, that's great. These are, these are great topics. Wonderful. Good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, you and I should stay in touch. I've really enjoyed oh, getting to know you. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for the opportunity. It's really a delight. It's, you're so easygoing and you're you know, obviously a wealth of, of knowledge and experience. And it's really, really fun to hang with you. So, Yeah, likewise. Our paths will cross again. I look forward <clears> to it. So uh, thanks to those who have been listening or watching. If you tried to submit a question and we didn't get it, sorry about that. There might be some problem with the form. There's always some technical thing. Today it was my computer breaking, as I said in the beginning. So I uh, will get it fixed and uh, test it thoroughly before next week. So if you'd like to see what next week is, and you might be watching this five years from now, I don't know if I'll still be doing this from five years from now, but go to uh, batgap.com and go to the upcoming interviews page and you can see everything we've got scheduled. And from time to time, occasionally we have a guest suggestion form that we open up and then it gets so flooded that we have to close it down again. But um, if you have guest suggestions, just keep an eye on that page and uh, you can suggest them when we open it again. So thanks so much and uh, thank you. Andrew, and we'll see you again.
That'd be great. Thanks for the opportunity, Rick. Really enjoyed it.